0: And welcome back, or welcome to the On Coaching podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined by my good friend and colleague John Marcus. John, what's you know, going it's my on, my favorite man? Time
1: of the week, time to get the people what they want.
0: That's right. We're gonna dive in, and before we get into today's episode, just a Scholar Clubhouse recap. Now, John, I'm gonna hand it over to you because I've been following your mini course live where you have essentially broken down like running economy, biomechanics, like, and when I say broken down, I'm talking like the, uh, We're getting into the nitty gritty details here. We're not on the superficial. No,
1: this is, um, you know, like I tell people, if you're listening to someone and they tell you from a biomechanics running standpoint, you need to forward lean and lean forward when you run, they have it all wrong. There's no such thing as the forward lean. The forward lean is an illusion, right? It is actually the result of correct force application into the ground per step of running and the project and the resulting projection of it. You hear this a lot. If people tell you to get your knees up, that's wrong. Again, the knees getting up is the result of the hip being um, put in an extensive position that allows the hip flexors to stretch. And then that discharge of elastic recoil allows knees to get up. So this has been 10 years in the making. This has been me going to Altus multiple times. So many dialogues with You know, Vern Gambetta, Dan Path, Sue McMillan, you know, people at the forefront of this, other biomechanists out there, as well as like astute observation of how the Kenyans and Ethiopians actually move and why it's so freaking um, highly uh, economical. Because that's the key. Mother Nature designed the human body to be a very economical machine. We did not want to spend calories. So we have these elastic bands, these fascial meridians. All these things where muscles aren't actually producing um, the force necessarily in a cyclical motion like running, but transferring it in a highly economical manner. So when we think about running technique and when we think about wickets, we have to understand what's going on is we're trying to leverage the human body's natural evolutionary propensity for a low caloric expenditure state. And we can do that if we harness everything correctly. But it's really hard because no one does it, or very few people do it in the West. Versus in East Africa, that is a very, very, very poignant um, focus of development. Brother O'Callum, with his you know, East Africans at his um, St. Perry School, they work on that a lot. You know, there's reference to it in like, say, a David Rashida documentary where he's like, oh, David Rashida has to come back with the juniors. We got to work on his technique again. He's getting a little sloppy. There's reference to it in More Fire where he talks about, oh, the Ethiopians just look stronger and faster in that early 2000, um, 2010 period where the Ethiopians were dominating distance runner. We got to get back to technique. Technique is so vital. I cannot explain the import of it. Plus, understanding wickets for runners, right? And the whole goal of wickets is that they're the best strength training um, that we can do besides hills or stairs. But even have more direct or specific application because wickets force you as a runner to put more force into the ground, making your whole body stronger in the exact, as Bonnerchuk would say, competitive exercise or movement that is running that we want to highlight. So it's been phenomenal and a lot of great questions, too. The whole point of the mini courses live is if you're a scholar, we run these mini courses live. So you get real questions in real time, just like you would in the, you know, seminar university setting so it's not just some static passive um, one-way learning module which we know is not as effective as an engaged discussion around table and other scholars have chimed in with their perspectives or they're applying wickets and saying hey look at this hey here's what I'm feeling other scholars have been like hey I, I use this on myself this is what it feels like I feel more powerful I feel with less energy expended this is awesome or I use it with my athletes here's the troubleshooting it's phenomenal so please join us because i think this is a big blue water area for western coaches and runners is understanding running technique and it's taken me 10 years and a lot of devotion tens of like i told a scholar it took me tens of thousands of hours and dollars to get to this point and we're giving away for pennies on the dollar if you sign up and join us
0: all right yeah it's you know i'm enjoying it I'm learning a lot. I love that you said lifting your uh, your knees, high knees, is a bad thing because that's my number one pet peeve <laughs> when I hear coaches uh, scream that at track meets. And it's tough because so, it's like
1: you know going to be the topic of today's podcast. At face value, that looks like that's what's going on, but the reality is it is the result or reaction of the action of putting force to the ground, Newton's third law of motion.
0: Yes, a great example. Maybe we'll get into that one a, a little bit more. So what is today's topic, you might ask? Well, the Dunning Kruger effect on steroids, how a narrow world view holds you and your athletes back. And maybe to start off with, we'll use that example as the high knees, the lifting of the knees. It, as you said, it seems like the right thing to do. You watch athletes, you watch competitors run, you watch fast people run, their knees come up pretty dang high. So you make this correlation. You say, you know what? I see, you know, whoever, Usain Bolt, whatever, distance runner, you say, their knees are coming up. Their knees are coming up when they, you know, sprint or kick at the end. This must be the key. I lift my knees my stride length will be longer this must be the key but that's very as you said a very shallow or superficial understanding because you don't you you are neglecting how the body actually functions and as you just described the knee going up is a result It's the result of essentially extension and getting that stretch or rubber band effect on the, on the thigh and having it good extension, which then shoots the leg forward and brings the knee higher. If you extend well, and you can, you can see this in people who, you know, maybe you watch people jog around the neighborhood and they're shuffling along. Is it because they're not lifting their knee or is it because they're not putting force into the ground and extending their leg in a, in a, or their thigh in a productive manner? The answer is, you know, the, the and extension But the, the thing that's tough, too, so, on this
1: specific is you can flex the hip flexor to raise and elevate the knee up you and thigh up and leg up. You can do that, but it is not Mother oh, yeah. Nature's yeah. designed way from a yeah. kinesiology and anatomy standpoint. It's very high. comes with a high economic cost or a high metabolic cost and caloric cost to do it like that. The other way, essentially free, free energy.
0: Yeah, exactly. And it's if you look at the musculature, like the you, you don't want the the relatively smaller hip flexors doing more of the work than they have to, especially when running really fast. That puts a high stress load and strain on those um in particular. But it anyways, so the point of that example is pretty simple. Is the Dunning Kruger effect, what is it? Well Yeah, I was all I was gonna say is it's the idea that when we have a little bit of knowledge or a little bit of competence we greatly overestimate the level of that knowledge or competence, right? We think we know how things work. We think we know, you know, a lot more than we actually do. And the way that we like to think about it is when we have a very narrow, shallow, superficial kind of understanding of a topic, our confidence is very high, right? Because we think, hey, we get it. I understand this. This is great. Um, but we're only seeing a small bit of the picture. And 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 most of us have experienced something like this, you know, multiple times, but in school especially, right? You take the introductory level course or class you're like i get this this makes sense like i understand all these complex physiology things and then you go into the advanced class and you're just like holy crap like what are all these pathways what is well like what is all this stuff and you often see it in fields that that come intuitively um for example, you know, nutrition, there's all these ideas or theories that kind of make sense on the surface (laughs) level. But then when you dive underneath, you're like, oh, crap, the body doesn't work like that. Like, this isn't a single mechanism or pathway. This is like dozens on dozens to get to this effect. So this simple idea of, oh, if I eat this, and it causes my body to do that, that doesn't hold because the body is way more complex than you give it credit.
1: Right. The The original paper is called Unskilled and Unaware of It, How Difficulties in Recognizing One's Own Incompetence Lead to Inflated Self-Assessment. And you're exactly right. This is where the Dunning-Kruger effect simply is where someone fails to assess their confidence appropriately. And that's in early years. Confidence is disproportionately high. But the devilish irony is that one is very incompetent. and That's the thing is like that unskilled and unaware of it, you see this a lot in the world now, more than ever in social media, because, you know, we can put things out there that on the surface or at face value seem correct or seem plausible. And that is what we call truthiness, right? And because of that, we glean onto it because it's simple, it's straightforward, it's a direct cause and effect. But very little in life, unfortunately, is there a direct cause and effect. We like things that have a quick, immediate, direct cause and effect. You are feeling tired, boom, you have some soda with caffeine, you have a Coke, I feel good now. But the effect of the effect, the second order and third order effects is going to be a very you know, vicious metabolic cycle where you crap, you get this insulin spike, you crash, you have caffeine in your system now. If you have that caffeine at say three o'clock, four o'clock in the afternoon, then you can't get to sleep because caffeine has a half life of six hours, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, the immediate short term solution was met, but long term it has diabolical consequences, and this is I think we have to address as coaches and athletes how that narrow world view. Impacts the experience and also development of an athlete because Steve and I were talking offline about this before. You know, oftentimes when I go on, say, Twitter and like publish and publicize that I'm running a low mileage, high quality approach to training distance learners at the high school level, you know, I'm not saying it's the best approach, the only approach. I think it can work, but he, and the demonstration is here's how it works, here's why it's working. I provide the science, the evidence. And everything in the Scholar Clubhouse through the inside of high school season thread I'm running. But in every, invariably, someone's going to go, You're burning those kids out. You are just going for your own glory and success and this and that. And it's like, Whoa, 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 timeout genes. Probably not because the methodologies we're using are science based and backed and evidence driven and also are going to instill a lot of life lessons and, um, Postures and cues and techniques for these kids, and they're having fun. That's the most important thing. But we tend to think that's going to quote unquote burn them out when you know nine point you know ninety nine point nine 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 percent of these kids aren't going to go on to run competitively or much after high school or even college. And I'd say you know Steve said this eloquently: it's the the person who is telling them they need to go all in and being a distance runner year round, aerobic development's the key. You have to do nothing else but specialize in distance running early to be a good runner. That person is probably hurting the development of the kid more than, say, this person who I'm saying, oh, we do all this different strength work. Yeah, go throw the shot put. Yeah, go do pole vault. Yeah, go do long jump. Yeah, go play soccer. Yeah, go play basketball. Yes, by all means, go have a diverse sampling of – physical literacy through different athletic pursuits. And then, yeah, maybe your senior year or your junior year, we can start to narrow that down and specialize, but only after that really diverse sampling has happened rather than like, oh, they're a phenom. We should just run only, you know, from eighth grade all the way through high school. And we'll just get a lot of miles in them and develop them. And that'll be great. Probably not great.
0: All right. Let's, let's dive into this because I think, I think this is important. Um, the, this Dunning-Kruger effect often ha- happens when we, we get narrow, okay? And what you're describing here is the world like shrinks around you so that you start overemphasizing or, or, or over-indexing on things that might not be as important. So in your case, right, as coaching a, you know, a small high school, et cetera, et cetera, um, those demands, what is best for those kids might be different from, you know, someone coaching, well, they are different than someone coaching a college program, right? Those demands are different at coaching at distance at University of Houston versus NAU, right? Because the, the the level of athlete the level or the you know potential like the scholarship that's expectations
1: there, right? I mean,
0: yes, are, are, are all different. And I think often what happens is we, we don't take that into consideration because we get so narrow in our world that like track is the only thing, or running fast is our job and it's the only thing. But that's not true. As coaches, I like to, you know, I, I like to tell, or I used to like to tell parents when I was recruiting athletes, I'd say, late listen, your son or daughter is gonna spend more time with me than any professor she has, right? Than anybody else, you know, any other adult or whatever in 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 college, for better or worse. And my goal is to make it for better, which means like, I'm going to try and pass down lessons and like set them up for life or whatever that go beyond just this running stuff. And yes, we're going to try and get, get better, but in running, but often what happens is we get so narrow and Nick Willis actually tweeted something that I think tied into this, um, Nick was responding to uh, the the kind of controversial Shelby Houlihan. She's training all this stuff right now, even though she's um, under a ban currently. And he said, I just can't understand why, how Shelby is still motivated to train. It's a big world out there. Why stay in this bubble that is track and field? And I thought that was really, you know introspective for someone who's been in track and field a long for time a while. at a high but level but then like, yeah. respect yeah. to the goat
1: i mean come on
0: but then you know i remember i i mean you remember it too i mean back when he ran you know 401 i think in in 2001 2002 whenever mm-hmm. in high school yeah, right in new okay. zealand um so that's you know that's 20 plus years ago but then it got me thinking, well, here's the guy who's been in the sport for 20 plus years, and hes survived it at a high level and in, in metal that for all that good stuff, but stuck in it. And it's probably that perspective that that's allowed him to stick in it, right? He understands the big world, that track and field isn't all and uh, the only thing that matters you know and i'm not saying we we downplay it enough but i think sometimes zooming out and giving you that perspective takes away some of this this kind of dunning-kruger narrowness effect because you you start to realize you know oh this thing that i've thought hey this is the best way this is the only way this is the thing that we do the world is much broader and You know, correct me if I'm wrong here, John, but that's part of our mission on the Scholar Program is if, and and this isn't an ad, I'm just telling you what it is. If you look at all the courses we have, if you look at all the clubhouse conversations we have, but in particular the courses, you're going to see training from guys in the 1920s who ran 10 miles a week. You know, for Glenn Cunningham, we, we go over him who ran, you know, like you know, his workout was like show up to the track, do two four hundreds and go home. And he ran whatever, four hundred six on the mile. We go through that. We also go through, you know, Arthur Lydiard. We go through um <coughs> we go through uh Van Aken and his long like, lots of volume coupled with, you know, a minimal but intense amount of very fast work. We go through, you know, Sebastian and Peter Coe, And our, our point in going through all of these variations of training is because if you can broaden your world and get a little perspective, then you realize that there's about a thousand ways to skin the cat And your job as a coach, even if we're just looking at the narrow world of performance, is to be able to say, "Okay, here's this athlete I have. What tools can I pull out and use? You know, what's going to work in this situation? Because we make this mistake. And sorry, I'm ranting. I love it. it. I'm really just passionate about this. It's. We make this mistake that the training should be the same <laughs> ideology from, you know, the age of 10 to 80, whatever it is, right? And we say that, and you see this at the high school level, you say, the coaches look and it's like, oh, what are the pros doing? What are they doing? What is, you know, Schumacher or, or Bowerman doing? What? And I get that. That's important. Don't get me wrong. But these these guys have 10 years of development behind them, sometimes more. You know, these people are, are freakishly talented. So I, th- I think it's figuring out what works with the people you have in the system that, or the people you have in the environment you have in place. And John, like to me, what you're offering is, and I wouldn't do it with, like, in my situations I've been in because they're different. But what you're offering is a different approach that says, hey, you know, maybe if you're at a small private school and you've got all these kids and not, you've are you got these kids and, you know, a diverse talent range, like, hey, consider this approach to keep people in. And I think that's fine and that's good and that's great. Like, we should be celebrating and understanding different approaches instead of, instantly shutting things down and I will say the other thing John is early in my career I probably would have shut down and this is a great example why do you shut things down because it's easier and it's simpler to wrestle with like a world that makes sense in a world that makes sense one of the ways we we make it make sense is we narrow it narrow it narrow it until there's only one simple pathway, and it's just not real. You know, it's just not real.
1: Yeah, that I mean, we've preached this long and hard, but that's the import of education. Is the more educated you are, the more which just means the more diverse exposure to conflicting or counter thoughts and ideas you have. The more you can look at a broad scope of evidence and make a decision. And the that is the number one thing that we're going to see, um, kind of, you know, be at a deficit here, not only for the current time but potentially the next generation, is this lack of championing this broad um, investment in evidence and different type of evidence, whether it's complete sound, concrete science, or whether it's beliefs and feelings you know being able to have that tolerance and empathy and compassion is really really key and the scientific mind is exactly this it's very simple the scientific mind is say i'm going to do the best i can do right now with the evidence and experience i have however if new evidence and or experience comes along that refutes or discredits the current paradigm from which i'm operating i will then drop that and move and evolve to a new paradigm and you know the the thing is like the best coaches i've found can coach at any level in any situation because their principles are sound right i can toggle between having coached professionals to collegiate to masters to high school athletes very well all their trainings different everyone's different different situation because we shouldn't train high schoolers as elite pros train we should train elite high schoolers as those elite pros trained as high schoolers but Like you said, absolutism is way easier. It's way easier to be absolutist with your approach. And it's lazier, but it's also reassuring, and it gives you a sense of psychological safety. And that's the kicker, is as long as there's something that doesn't disrupt or discredit your worldview, you feel safe, and you feel righteous, and you feel virtuous. But we should always seek to disrupt our worldview as coaches in for our athletes and also for our own sake because there's more to it than just this very simple um you know faith what i call face value direct cause and effect and that's the famous you know causation you know correlation doesn't mean causation causation doesn't mean correlation it's that's what people are trying to get at it's like you know growing up um a little bit uh, underprivileged in say like the economic world, right you know, family was by all means like lower middle class for sure. and our concept of money was you earned money and then you spent money on things you needed, right for goods and services. Having evolved and grown up, I understand it is not about your earnings. it is about your wealth. it is about what you invest in. So your earnings could be fifty thousand dollars hundred thousand, whatever, but if you then appropriately invest in assets, you can keep earning 50000 whatever, 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 but those assets incur value over time. Now your wealth's a lot higher. But a lot of people don't make that connection between how to use money and the way, different ways you can use money to increase your um, you know, financial status. It's, for so many people, it's still just a direct cause and effect. Spend time at a job for an hourly wage. Make money. Then go spend it immediately on goods and services and products I need, you know, and what we're trying to do here with say the scholar program, or even these podcasts is create wealth of information for, you know, open-minded seekers who want to better themselves and their situation and their athletes results and their athletes experience by giving you a diverse sampling of a lot of concepts and ideas and methodologies that did have value and did produce results because success does leave clues. But, the the key to remember here is you have to be thirsty for upping your game, you know, leveling yourself up and not fall into this dogmatic, overly narrow worldview of this incompetence, this confident incompetence, right? That is the dying Kruger effect, just because you had a little success. Like uh, Jesse Squires, like super track fan on Twitter posted the best tweet in a long time, I saw. Um, let me see. I can bring it up. You know, talking exactly about um, the uh, elevation of times in distance running recently, and how the, everyone now thinks they're a lot better at training methodology, or the athletes are better. And you know, faster than ever before, and you know, like people are just more good, so to speak, in simple terms. But the truth is, that's not the case, right? He says, you know, and I quote: "It's um, um here it is. It's foolhardy to think that we're so much faster now because we know more. Much of the improvements are tech-driven, maybe even most. And this is exactly right. And you know, I'll." um go off a rant here that Arthur Lydiard in his book The Lydiard Way published in 1978 talked about and there's a, a section called improved times. He goes, most people have attributed the improved track times in the last decade to improved training techniques or a more enlightened or dedicated approach to training. I wouldn't agree with this. This is Arthur Lydiard, 1978. Certainly, there has been a general improvement in the training of athletes throughout the world. But what really brought times down was the introduction of new synthetic tracks worldwide, new technology. It would be interesting to see a man like Peter Snow running at his best on them. He would have rebounded off them really fast and could well have set the mark, marks that would be difficult for anyone to beat today. Remember that he ran his mile, 880 eight yards records on grass which would be at least a second a lap slower than the modern synthetic surfaces, four seconds in the mile. Compare his 354.1 mile with John Walker's 349.4 on that basis and decide how much or how little human improvement has been. I mean, it's the same thing with super shoes. I would argue today athletes are actually weaker, not stronger, because they have super shoes and now – for people who don't understand, the surface at Hayward Field is a super surface. They don't publicize it because they want you to go, oh, these records are being set at Hayward. Hayward's amazing. No, it is the most super surface in the world. You get the most energy return on the surface. Bison, Bison was like hyped about it, but it's hush hush. So combine super shoes with super surface, and then you get what you had at NCA 10K last year. All these guys are in under 28, even though they're probably weaker in terms of lack of muscular strength than Ron, the wrong Clarks of the world who ran buku fast on cinders, which is a very unforgiving energy zapping, not re, re, return surface, in these weighted shoes with a wood sole and these nails essentially in them. And uncomfortable all leather. I have a couple pair of those, these spikes from that era. It, they are the worst thing ever. <laughs> But, so, but the Diane Kruger effect is exactly what people say. No, we're better. Hey, this coach at this high school with all these kids running really fast, he must know something that we don't no, it's just that that coach at that high school has his kids training in super shoes year round like if you look, are they competing in cross country in the vapor flies? you know are they compete- are they training in them those things? are they always in you know the dragonflies or whatever else super shoe is out there, right? I think we have to take a step back and be a lot more humble because that's what the Diane kruger effect essentially says: is you're in, you're incompetent because you're too confident in what you know. You have to have a little bit more humility.
0: Yes, I, I I think again, if you look at those things, and I'm glad you brought up that example, is it is it is uh, very much a the world is so narrow, so let's simplify it, right? Why are we running faster? Well, it's it's training. We're getting better on training, etc. Attributing this to something external is almost seen as a threat. Actually, I had a message from an athlete once, who um, very successful athlete, who you know was critiquing me. Uh, this was back early in the super shoes on the track phase, saying, "Hey, you know the." you shouldn't say the the speed increase is attributable to the super shoes that makes athletes look bad or that like puts athletes down and all the work they put in and i said you know i get that but i'm not trying to put any athlete down i'm trying to figure out like what reality is you Mm -hmm. know and tech technological increases like it's no different than we we look at um, Kipchoge's sub-two-hour marathon. I think it's fantastic. Great marketing
1: exercise. But, Great marketing exercise, for sure.
0: Yeah. But we don't say, hey, he ran sub-two hours. We say, uh, and, and just leave it at that. We say, you know, he had you know, new improvements in the shoes. He had pacers coming in and out and like, et cetera, et cetera. And we say, hey, all those things contributed. Kipchoge still did the exercise, which yeah. is amazing. As we said, he's an amazing athlete, but we have to acknowledge the the components that come in. Right. Or in like when help, we acknowledge
1: that and we called that out and we just said, Hey, look, and then like, remember that all of Kenya on Twitter wanted us dead. <laughs> <laughs> they said, You're a racist. You guys don't like this guy. Da, 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 da. And I was like, No, we're just saying he's phenomenal and he's amazing. However, th- that superficial lens of that time was highly engineered through external conditions. There's a reason they picked where they picked. They did what they did. They did everything. Like, these are smart people who thought about this and said, Okay, what's the best way to? Manufacture the most highly economical situation for probably one of the most highly economical runners in the modern era. You know, it'd be interesting to get Samuel Longerno's uh, running economy, which we can't, unfortunately. But it, it was just a perfect storm of all those things. But we can't discredit the influence of the external engineering that went into that.
0: Yes, it, exactly. I think you're spot on. So, you know, to me, what this tells us And what I, this is not just a running problem, but it's like we need to deal with the messiness. Mm -hmm.
1: And it's like in track, the unfortunate thing, just before we move on to the next point, is a lot of people have this thought in track, there's an absolutism in time or marks. Everything's uniform, everything's the same surface, you know, the oval, blah, 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 blah. Not the case, right? When we were putting on the, um, you know, now middle distance classic or Oxy High Performance Meet, we, you know, myself, Rose, Gags, specifically picked. Occidental College in California, why? The turns were 120 meters, long turns, very distance running, friendly turns. Now, if we were coaching, if we were working with sprinters and it was a sprinter focus meet, we would have picked straightaways that were very long, like short turns, you know, because there's tracks that have short turns, right? 80 meter turns and 120 meter straights almost, right? So that would have proposed a little different, um, conditions on the situation because the goal for the middle distance classic was get the fastest time possible so the athletes can get their qualification mark for championships olympics whatever out of the way before you know world athletics came in and said oh we're going to make this point system so we have to like respect that things are not absolutist and yet we have this expectation or even i see this at the high school level very motivated and competitive kids And their parents have this expectation that every race they should be in faster. Otherwise, the training's not working. And it's like, no, the conditions are different, right? The first track meet of the year we had in Oregon for the high school kids, it was perfect weather. It was sunny. It was no wind. It was like uh, upper 50s, low 60s. Perfect. The last track meet we had last night was... um, 34 to 40 degrees, various fronts coming in, wind, rain, hail, snow, and a mixture of that just unpredictable on cycle. <laughs> so we're a month into the season here. And you're like, oh, so in those conditions, they should be faster than these conditions. And that's the thing about the sport is it's like saying this absolutism of stats, whether it's track or which you can compare, but also football, basketball, baseball. We know in those um, contests, there's not an absolutism of stats. There's an absolutism of win-loss. And I think the same thing should be championed at our level. It's an absolutism of competitiveness. Were you competitive given the same external constraints or conditions that you are all subject to on the day? Not like, oh, see, that person's getting worse. They're running the same time or slower. Well, they might be doing it in wildly different scenarios because they're working on different competitive models, like I'm having some of the high school kids do now in April so that they're better set up tactically for the championship period in a month. But so often we just go towards the Dan Kruger absolutism concept, time, 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 time. And we're seeing this starting to actually see this now, like, say, with the, um, uh, you know, different like nationally renowned high school runners are out there. They're kind of coming up to a threshold of that's as fast as they're, they are now with the enhancement from the super shoes. Right. At first, it was like, oh, my God, how much faster they can get, how much faster they can get. And it's like they're kind of like leveling off. Right. And this is what's going to happen and will happen, you know, collectively is we will get a level off of times once everyone has maximize and exploit the super shoe effect and then we'll have a new status quo
0: yeah yeah i mean it's just the status quo changes it's no different than sender to synthetic um but you you brought up an interesting point and i want to maybe this is this is somewhat related because i think and i don't want to make this a super shoe podcast but because people hate hate that sometimes but it's interesting to think of uh, of uh, Peter Snell on grass oh, versus yeah. synthetic track. And one of the examples, I know it's not a perfect comparison because a grass track is flat, but one of the examples I like to give to show the like difference that surface can make, especially individually based on biomechanics, is that of one of the greatest distance runners in history, Geber Selassie. Like, he was... In the 90s, like Geber Selassie, for those who maybe aren't as, you know, old enough, was the man. Like, he dominated everything, you know, world records, brought everything down, crazy fast, all that stuff, gold medals. But in the midst of that, in the midst of his peak of career in the mid-90s, he also ran world cross country, Right. And if you look at his World Cross Country, I've got it pulled out up here. This is, again, in the midst. He's setting world records. He's the best on the planet. He's winning world championships, um, Olympic medals, or Olympic golds, all that good stuff. In 1993, at World Cross, he was seventh. In 94, he was third. In 95, he was fourth. In 96, he was fifth. and. Ninety seventy, and who run. was dominant
1: but, and, at that time?
0: Yes, Paul Tergat. So we we've we, but the interesting thing here to me is you have different surfaces, right? And Geber Selassie absolutely owned everybody else oh. on the track, mm-hmm. including Tergat. You know, and one of those races, Selassie is shorter Crossy than Tergat. Be... He has
1: lo- shorter, littler legs, little levers.
0: <laughs> yes. But it's like, again, the the mechanics of things influence influence things, you know, to and to give you an idea on his track during that same period. I'll just go world championships. Ninety three. He won gold and 10K silver and five. Ninety five. Ten K gold. Ninety seven. Ten K gold. Ninety nine. Ten K gold. Olympics. Ninety six. Ten K gold. Two thousand. Ten K gold. So dominant, especially over 10K, and set world records in that frame, but was getting his butt kicked by sometimes 30, 40 seconds over 12K, so essentially the same distance, on grass. And that, to me, is another great example of this nuance of the sport. And I think how this changes with the super shoes, and you're seeing this with the marathon, is you start to see – People's limiting factors shift because they no longer have to worry about, you know, X, Y, Z. For example, if running economy is your weak point, especially in the marathon, well, guess what? You've just got a huge and you're a sponder, guess what? And your biomechanics align, maybe like a middle distance runner, guess what? You just got a huge boost and your your limiting factor is no longer your running economy. Thanks to not something you did or trained for, but thanks to a uh, evolution in technology which now makes you able to compete in places that maybe you weren't able to complete. Maybe with if Geber, my point is if Geber Salasi had, you know, super spikes or whatever on the grass, maybe he beats Paul Tergott and is able to use his responsiveness that so, you know, was so readily uh, available, observable and important, obviously on the track on synthetic tracks. And that wasn't there because on, you know, back in the day, spikes, etc on the grass, you just kind of sunk into the ground and you didn't get as much of that responsiveness. So Geber Selassie's, you know, uh, this talent essentially was- It was, was neutralized, right? Little, well, out with the
1: longer li- levers good. and limbs, taller, covered more ground in the same lack of responsiveness or, you know, surface.
0: Yeah. So it's just again, this is why I, I love this because it's um it's wrestling with the nuance of stuff. And that's what we're trying to get, get at here as coaches, tying this back into this kind of Dunning Kruger effect on steroids, is when we get a narrow world, we start, yes, it makes us feel better. Yes, we think that, you know, one plus one equals two, and it makes sense, but we lose out. Because, like, we don't have this broad perspective where we can pull from things when things don't work in the expected avenue. Because you, as coaches, know you're going to get an athlete, you're going to get people, you're going to coach at a place where the traditional model, like, may not work for somebody. And you've got to be able to pivot and shift and
1: stay humble when new information comes to light and seek that out. Like, you know, the thing is, I remember when I realized or found out that there's no such thing as speed work. It doesn't exist, you know? And I say, well, you're like, whoa, whoa, you're the high-quality, high-intensity guy. What's going on here? Well, remember, faster running is a product of more force being applied at the correct time into the ground, and the faster limb exchange happens because the elastic recoil that that we talked about at the beginning of this podcast is quicker. Remember, the fascial system and the elastic recoil mechanism operates at the speed of sound, 761 miles per hour. The neurological system operates far too slow, far too slow, like 150 to 200 miles per hour. Not quick enough, right? But if I can position my limbs and get this kind of fascial, you know, um, contralateral pre-stretch that happens, right? And going back to Jack Daniels, 1978, Conditioning of distance runners, he goes, a pre-stretched muscle then contracts more forcefully. So when it's pre-stretched, it contracts more forcefully. I get a quicker limb exchange. Then I also cover more ground in the aerial phase of flight. So there is no such thing as speed work. To say we want to make force through muscular contraction, the limbs to get a quick, you reach a quick ceiling that is a limiting factor. But if you are focused on being a stronger runner by applying more force in the ground per step, you will then become a faster runner. So what does this mean? Well, like, let's say translating that to the, you know, speed the cat or feed the cats, you know, uh, timing everything methodology. That works because you're essentially to run faster, getting those kids stronger by asking to put more force in the ground to reach this time. But if it's not complemented with other strengthening techniques, wickets, hills, plyos, uh, basic force application to the ground, lifting movements, squats, and deadlifts, they will reach a limiting ceiling very quickly, right? Also, if you don't work on technique, because it's about correct direction of application of force, if your foot kind of hits the ground slightly in front of your center of mass, You're then in a stabilization, not force application point of view. And we talk about this in the scholar program in that mini course. Well, now you start to understand it's all strength. Training is all about strength. And even when we talk about endurance, we're actually talking about strength endurance. We're talking about the ability to put a submaximal force into the ground for 10K, half marathon, marathon, whatever, right? So then you, you start to see why strength training is so important. And we have documentation at Jim Ryan, pre-Fontaine, um, you know, even, I mean, obviously clearly SEBCO. like a lot of people did a lot of strength work in the weight room. Lydia famously said, oh no, not for me, but that bounding and hill phase, that's strength work 101, right? So it's understanding that connection. And when people say we haven't even done speed work yet as kind of like, oh, ha 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 ha. It's like, well, you really haven't done strength, high-intensity strength work, high-force application strength work. And you've gotten to a certain point in your development. But this is, again, where if we have the Dunning-Kruger, you know, confidence incompetence, then we say, oh, look at all the miles we ran. Look at this. We're, we're quote-unquote, strong. Strong in what way?
0: Yeah, you know, the the thing that I think is important here is... Once you think that there is a single way or that you figured it out, <laughs> you go in you go into um protect and defend mode. You get out of learning mode. And learning mode means you don't necessarily accept everything you don't necessarily say hey this is great i'm going all in on this you're just open to ideas and open to exploration you're that you're the explorer who is still looking around instead of saying you know this is the only path after you know finding you know the first path that you can find and i think that's so important and valuable as a coach, and I also think it takes like the humility and understanding to to see what works, you know. And there's been some some great athletes and great runners who switch their training methodology and are open to things. I mean, I remember I'll give you a great example. Um, the Norwegian training is all the buzz right now. Right with Inger Britsons and everybody else, and blah blah blah. Well, the guy who kind of got that going was Marius Backen. And if you look at Inger Britsons, uh, you know, uh, the coach of the Inger Britsons, he's on record saying, Yeah, I went to talk to Marius Backen and you know, teach me everything you know and then what you wish you didn't know, etc. And that's where a lot of the lactate testing comes in from is, is Marius was huge on exploring that. But what most people forget, and Marius is known for again that that you know, control your lactate, et cetera, et cetera. But what what people don't understand is two things. Is Marius back end was A went to York High School and was coached by Joe Newton, one of you know the great York runners. So coached by Joe Newton. And then afterwards, was coached, before he went to the kind of lactate testing, was coached by Peter Coe. Okay, so you've got this, this joint of influences, and people see the end result, and they're just like, oh, it's all about the lactate testing here, and look at this. But you have to understand these influences of people, and and this is, you know, that breltzes this stuff. The other thing that I would say, and you know, since we just talked about this, Joe Newton, who is known for his, you know, 100 plus mile weeks for high school kids and Lydiard and all this stuff. And you might think, oh, OK, like he's a Lydiard. <laughs> well, one of his best like coaching friends actually was mm-hmm. Peter Coe. Seb Coe came out and stayed with Newton all for of a while. All the on
1: Newton's okay? books are from Peter or Seb.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it, exactly. So here you have this, you know, we, we tend to p- put people in camps like Joe Newton, high mileage, et cetera. Uh, Seb and Peter Coe, low mileage, high intensity. And here you have these two great minds. Peter Coe great coach. You know, Joe Newton, great coach. Like doing different things or applying different things in different ways than maybe each would individually. But they're getting along, learning from each other, you know, utilizing each other as resources because they realize, hey, like, this is coaching. Like, I've got to be open to learning and understanding. And I think that's such a a, a brilliant example of, A, realizing that you can learn from anybody and that, like good coaching even if they yeah. have a different philosophy like you should become friends with them and learn from them and, and then b it's having a little like humility and understanding of like to to keep mm-hmm. exploring to keep tweaking to keep understanding and then c do what works in your environment Yeah, just
1: to bring up the joe thing because that's it's awesome um so you know in coaching cross-country successfully the uh, the book Joe Newton wrote, he goes, All right, preparing each day for this is cross country, you know. So, all right, at the, um, you know, a warm up of 20 to 30 minutes, followed by calisthenics, six by 100 strides at fast pace. So, this is mild pace. Then the main workout. And the main workout, his weekly training pattern was this long intervals on Monday, short intervals on Tuesday, the interrupted run on uh wednesday which um, is essentially a long run in segments a meet on thursday the day after the meet mid-length intervals which is up to 10 by 800 saturday a segment run up to an hour which is essentially alternation uh, lactate dynamic running and then sunday the individual long run up to 15 miles so all right they're not finished with the main workout now they do a handicap 300, which runners start in the reverse order of their ability, and that teaches them to run all out when most tired. They then follow this with another 10 times 100. Then the 30-30-30 exercises, which is circuits of jumping jacks, push-ups, etc., And then finally, there's the two-mile cool down. And we train, hold on, next paragraph, we train three times a week with weights. If you look at this, so much strength. So much strength. And the key thing about strength is strength is neural, right? So it is not transient. It is very stable gains. And he's doing that weekly, year round almost, for four years. It's kind of like Alan Webb, right? It's just like Ras the brilliance of Rascal wasn't necessarily the workouts. It's the fact like no matter what athlete you're working with or um you know, even Vin Lanana or even uh, John Cook, the weight room, they're in there three four times a week. They're also doing med ball stuff, they're doing plyometric stuff. That is strength training, or as people say, speed in disguise. But Marius Backham, I would argue, as you're arguing, Steve, had this nice pipe, this pipeline, right? Where it's like he, once he maxed out the quote unquote strength gains and development of that from uh, adolescent level, And then a young adult level with pure co only then was the next area to explore lactate threshold development because he's already just as strong as he could be and that's i think with the thing we have to take through is like when you know this narrative arc in this history it becomes a lot more sequential and um, natural the evolution of it but to just cherry pick and that's what happens with the dying kruger effect right People just cherry pick hardcore to create this confirmation bias of like, oh, see, they, you know, they do these only acceleration development or they do only this or they do 100 miles a week year round. And that's the key. Or they're doing long runs all the way through to, you know, the championship. They're doing temp. uh, That's it. It's yeah, it's easy to cherry pick. I mean, Steve, I could cherry pick all day, but it's more impactful to stay humble and go, huh didn't think that could work why does it work and that's that's the explorers or learners mindset
0: yeah you know and and the more i think about this as we've kind of worked through this on this podcast it really is about that explorer's (laughs) mindset it's like that open learning mode like even in that weak example you just gave (laughs) you can see the elements that like like, Newton probably took from Lydia training. You can see the elements he took from, like, uh, you know, probably conversations with Peter Coe. Like, you see these elements, and that's what the best coaches tend to do, is they take out, like, none of us are, are, are geniuses who have just invented this stuff out of thin air. Right. Yeah. I right? mean,
1: it's, it, we, it's I, I call them rigid thinkers, right? and you have to be a very flexible thinker. The best coaches are very flexible in their thought, you know, kind of the, um, I don't want to call them worse, but kind of, you know, the the more static coaches or people who might've had a good athlete once that did something well and then all the training's forever based off that. I remember my college coach, unfortunately, you know, one year I was like, well, here's what we did last year and this worked. So we're just going to do it again this year in the same order. And like, and all we do is just tweak the timing of the workouts based on how that year's team in cross country did at this, these meets. And I go, I knew it wasn't right when I was 18, 19. <laughs> and now I really know it's not right, but it was like, didn't sit well with me because it was such a rigid mindset versus being, you know, a little bit more flexible and adaptive.
0: Yeah, it, exactly. I mean, I think it's that flexibility to experiment, see what works, like change your mind um, all of that stuff, because that's, that's what it is. If you're coaching in the same way you did, uh, 10 years ago, that's probably a, I mean, that's a problem. I mean, you could have 95% of the same stuff, but we should always be like tweaking, exploring, like figuring out what works and, and often using the, the, as we talked about last time, the quote unquote outliers to Help shape that narrative of, or help shape our, or frame our, our work on, hey, this is something that works in this situation. And, and you see that like, this is yeah. a tool. I, yeah, and we see out. that,
1: like in the business world, the shift more towards like agile development, right, of concepts and products and ideas versus the old rigid silo, um, top-down hierarchical development.
0: Yeah. Exactly. And I, I think that's something we're seeing more and more. Maybe that's, so, our next, maybe that's the next that's book, like,
1: Steve. Agile Training for Distance Runners.
0: There you go. I, it's 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 being more responsive, you know, <laughs> where you're taking into consideration um, everything that goes into this and then figuring out, okay, wait, uh, what am I going to apply? And I think... I think that's 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 the key here is I've used this analogy many times on this podcast, but the way I like to think about it is I need to have a bunch of tools. I need to know what those tools do. And then I need to look at my athlete and my situation and see what tools will get the job done. And sometimes the one I think they that will get the job done doesn't. So I got to go back in the toolbox, pick it out, pick something else out and say, hmm, Maybe this will get the job done, and that—that's our job as as coaches. And if if we get too narrow, then we just have a very select few tools that 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 we can use, and those might work most of the time. But we're gonna get a situation where we need that special tool, or we need a different avenue to to go down. And we gotta we gotta have it. If we don't, if we've limited, if we become rigid, then we don't do some athlete, um, you know, justice or like help them in the way that we know. And that's capable. what I learned
1: like from Dan Path many years ago. It's, you know, a lot of people have really, really good plan A's. Plan A's with like, look at this periodization. Look at this, you know, nice undulation of like, you know, uh, endurance work, strength work, you know, faster reps, mileage, da, da, da. And it's nice and sequential. And oh, man, the numbers look beautiful. But it's not about who has the best plan A, because that's easy. That's in the ideal world. It's who has the best plan Bs, Cs, Ds, or contingency planning in the moment. And I'll give an example um, with the high school athletes I'm working with. So we had this rare snow day in April in Oregon on the school day, on Monday. And our meet schedule is set up now in April, where it's essentially a small little league meet on Thursday, and then an invitational on Saturday. So quick turnaround. So the ideal patterning would be an endurance, strength endurance focus session on um, Monday. And then a kind of more, you know, really quick speed maintenance or neurological strength, fast maintenance, um, mechanic maintenance workout on Tuesday, Wednesday, a little pre-meet, Thursday, the meet, rest day, then the invitational. Well, that was all thrown to crap because we got a snow day. (laughs) What are you gonna do? So then I made the decision. I go, well, all right, here's what we have to do is actually we have to not combine because now if I'm gonna do a strength endurance day and a speed day on the same day, and then I have one day of the kids have one day of rest before another meet, it's not gonna go well. So I just threw that plan completely out the window and said, you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna focus on doing wickets because and just reinforcing technique and strength and like trying to build their um, stride length through natural force application to the ground. That's a good strengthening activity. And we're gonna do a lot of them. We're gonna do like 10 of them, right? With a you know 40 meter run out. So that's a really good strength building activity, a little endurance of strength there, even though it's not metabolic. Then we're gonna complement it with just a really, really light maintenance of what we call a 200 meter drill, which is alternation surge training, lactic dynamic training, where it's going to be, all right, 200 at your 3K effort, pull back, and this is continuous island rest, 200 at a 10K effort. And you're probably going to do, you know, we're going to do one to two reps of that at 75% of the normal, quote unquote, volume that you've already built up to. So my top guy moved back to three laps of that. The, um, you know, younger athletes, they're at three laps, so we moved it back to two. Just a little maintenance thing that's go home, right? And that's it. And then they had, you know, the the meet in really adverse weather and conditions like we had, I described earlier yesterday, like snow, hail, wind, rain, high, low fronts coming in. And we just focused on competing, right? And part of executing the tactical process of competition. We have certain segments and people really did well in those segments. Some people got PRs. That was great. Some people got near PRs. Some people not at all. It didn't matter. What mattered was, we figured out how to race that event better for that athlete so they could, um, down the road at the bigger meet, be more well-equipped, not only you know phys- physically and psychologically, but also tactically. So, and then what's today? Today's a total rest day. Go, all you're going to do is do one lap, the team warm-up, which is one lap, easy jog, dynamic drills, go home. <laughs> That's it, because we have another meet for you guys, which is our home invite on Saturday, but this is, if I didn't have the flexibility or rigidness, what would happen is I have that snow day and be like, oh, we're not going to get the stimulus. I need, oh my God, we're, oh, you know, and just like all this angst and anxiety and, oh, the mileage, the aerobicness, the, it's all going to evaporate. And it's like, no, no, no. The goal of the middle of the high school track season is to keep the, uh, maintain strength but not make the athlete tired or beat up. And so you have to go into maintenance mode, which has a lot of value because again, they will, if you operate on the two, um, two factor fitness fatigue model of um, dose and response, then we are alleviating that fatigue so that their fitness and strength can shine through. But had we not known this, probably a much different path than what a quote unquote blown the kids up by saying, oh, we got to do now this combo strength endurance or endurance workout and speed workout today because we got to get the stimulus in because I wrote it down on a piece of paper. And that's what matters other than saying, hey, what's in the best interest for the athletes given the circumstances and reality we find ourselves in at this moment that was unplanned for? Snow in Portland, Oregon in April, never.
0: I love it. No, I think that's a great example and a great, yes, that's a great example, which is how to be flexible and adaptable, open, like learning, explores mindset. And if we can do that, we're in a much better place than the false sense of certainty that a narrow world often gives us. Amen. Amen. So, mm-hmm we'll we'll leave you guys to chew on that how how can you be more flexible open adaptable think about it how are you you trying to be like Joe Newton and you know exploring different ideas one way you can do that check out the scholar program we have we try to you know provide the resources for all different views we have conversations monthly zoom meetings to hash this stuff out in real life and then also on our scholar clubhouse these discussions as well so be sure to check that out if you're explorer if you're open-minded join join the club man seriously
1: it's getting bigger every day it's like you know 10 members a week pop in loving it like we're just creating this robust community and i mean a good example of this is like a scholar uh you know was applying to a program uh in the coaching you know world and he let me know. And I said, Oh, I know the people who are running this. So let me, you know, forward my recommendation. And, you know, the people who are uh, administering it, heard my recommendation, took it, and fortunately gave the scholar admittance into this program. It was phenomenal. And that's what we're trying to do is build this community where it's, it's not just me or Steve, like we said, so much, you know, for so often, it's all of us, a rising tide lifts all boats. If you join us, you contribute, you share. I mean, even the most Fun channel in our scholar clubhouse is for me, the Enlightenment Project, which is essentially book nerds nerding out on books. (laughs) And we're like, hey, I read this book. This is awesome. Hey, I read this book. And several scholars were like, it's kind of like book porn. We then post pictures of the books we're reading and go, I got these books because of the recommendations here. Thank you so much. It is like, yes, for the nerd on nerds, but like we have this collective consciousness of all these different books that span not only modern day publishing, but all the way through really old, you know, esoteric ones that are out of publish or out of print. And we're like, this is so awesome. These are good. So yeah, there's an even value there if you want to just up your book collection and reading list. Um, it's a, it's a great way to do it.
0: Come on in. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. Join us and we'll be back next week.